if you are on a, a journey, uh, because it happens as people go through different uh, uh, philosophical, uh, theological systems in search of, why am I here? What's my purpose? Uh, and what you find is you go through those different systems of belief that they're wanting. Uh, they're good to a point, and then they leave you bankrupt because they don't answer the ultimate questions that uh, help you deal with, uh, with your soul and sin. Uh, there was a man years ago, uh, and I'll eventually get to Isaiah 53. We all know it takes me a few minutes, right, to actually get to the text. I don't think I'm uh, off target when we talk about Acts chapter 8. Uh, because in Acts chapter 8, there's a, a eunuch, a, a, a politician uh, tied to uh, Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians. And Ethiopia back in that day was like uh, Nubia, uh, southern uh, Egypt, a uh, very arid location. Uh, and her son, uh, her name was Candace, and her, her son, uh, he, he was the royal son who was worshipped. So since her son was worshipped uh, as deity status, he didn't have time for the mundane things of, like running the economy. Uh, and so that was Candace. Uh, Candace had a, a eunuch attached to her uh, that uh, was not too happy, didn't find ultimate answers in the polytheistic structure of uh, the particular uh, belief system within his country. And so as he struggled with that, he uh, heard about the, the Jewish faith. And so he began to travel by way of chariot. And you have to look at it in a map sometime. To go by chariot from, well, southern Egypt to Jerusalem is no small thing. Because I wouldn't say the shock absorbers on a chariot were the best thing in all of the world. I'm sure it was a very, very bumpy ride uh, as he went out across the desert. And there weren't places to stop like Dairy Queen, do you remember Stuckey's? Remember those? When we drove across the United States, we always planned our trip by Stuckey's all the way across the U.S. every year, Highway 66, remember back in the day? Uh, he had none of those things, so he had to go totally prepared. I'm sure he had a, a little entourage, probably a driver because he was wealthy. Uh, he took care of uh, the, the treasury or the money of the country, so he was a very wealthy man, uh, but he didn't find any satisfaction in the belief system of his country, so he found that in the Jewish belief system, but it still left him with questions. Uh, now, according to the Torah, Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, a eunuch was not allowed into the Temple Mount area uh, to be near God's holy temple, but he at least went to Jerusalem to be near the Jews who were worshiping this God that he had not heard of before. Uh, on his way back uh, to uh, his homeland, uh, Philip had been dispatched by the Spirit of God to link up with this politician on this road in the middle of nowhere. Talk about a, a spiritual rendezvous. Uh, and why are we talking about this? Because you've been brought here by God. If you don't know God, you've been brought here by God for a reason. And that reason is to come to terms as the eunuch did with who is Jesus? Uh, and I, I, I'm kind of like Philip today. I'm on the design uh, appointment to deliver to you the goods as to who is Jesus. Because God told uh, him to get down, you know, get down to that area uh, and you will run into a politician in a chariot uh, and speak to him. And so Philip's like, okay, Lord, I'll do that. So he's, you know, can imagine walking along a, a desert arid road. All of a sudden you see a chariot in the distance. Uh, the guy riding in the chariot probably had a driver uh, is reading from the Torah, from the prophets. And uh, what they did back then is they read out loud, not like we do, you know, where we sit and we do it silently. They read the scripture out loud. So that's why when Philip passes by the man as they're slowly going along in the chariot, he can hear him reading these words. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. He was like a lamb that was led to slaughter, uh, like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people? This would be Israel. Uh, to whom was the stroke due? Uh, he hears him reading that. 
And so he walks up to the chariot as, as, a, as a man who knew Christ uh, and was on a mission from God there uh, to speak with whoever God ordained for him to speak to that day. Uh, and Philip hears him reading from the book of Isaiah, uh, prophet Isaiah chapter uh, 53, verses 7 to 8 that we'll get into next week. Uh, and he knew exactly what he was reading. And so he asked a typical question. He asked the man in the chariot as he passes him by, do you understand what you are reading? Do you get it? Can you connect the dots? I mean, haven't you ever read the Bible? I mean, haven't you ever read it and you thought, what in the world? I don't have any idea what he's talking about. Has this happened to you? Nobody? Like, yeah, it happens to me, you know? Uh, but, you know, I, I know, you know, how to study and how to read, and the Spirit of God uh, helps me understand things as he does you because he's your, he's your teacher, as we'll learn in uh, 1 John chapter 2 when we get back to John. Um, the guy had no clue. Uh, no, I really don't know what, what I'm reading. So he asked a question, a uh, counter question. He says, uh, well, I asked, he says to Philip, I ask you, whom does the prophet Isaiah say this, of himself or of some other man? This is really interesting, his reply, because he says, I realize it's a man who's going to die a gruesome death and then be exalted, but I don't know who that is. Is it, is it Isaiah or is it somebody else? He didn't say, is it a nation, i.e. Israel? the Jews? No, he said, it seems to me when I read it, it seems like it's a man. Um, so Philip, as you read Acts chapter 8, is going to wax eloquent as a Jewish convert to identify to him, Jesus is the, is the man. He's the man prophesied in this passage. He was the one that was arrested on trumped-up trial. Uh, he was the one that was silent before the shearers, i.e. the Romans, uh, as they persecuted him, flogged him, etc. Um, he was the one that went to his crucifixion by not saying a word, even though he was uh, faultless. Uh, he was the one cut off. Uh, the word cut off in Hebrew means to kill. He was the one murdered. Um, he was the one that was murdered, and he did it all for the sake of the people. He tells them who this is. And, and all of a sudden, that chariot becomes a confessional booth. And the eunuch has this aha moment, spiritually speaking. He's like, it's unbelievable. I now, for the first time in my life, understand, number one, I'm a sinner. That's my problem. And number two, Jesus was the Messiah, the servant, the Savior. I need to know him. And in that, in that, there on that dusty road in the middle of nowhere, that man's life was changed forever because he understood who Jesus was. I would say uh, this politician uh, had been searching for quite a while. And he was so happy when uh, everything was, well, the mystery of what was the issue in the world. Why am I here? Why is my problem? Uh, when he came to know Christ, his life was changed ever. You, you might be like that politician. Right? We might have a few confused politicians in our area, right? And what do they ultimately need? Better argumentation, better proof, better facts? Do they? No, no, they didn't need all that. Uh, they, like anybody else that doesn't know Christ, they need Christ. Isn't he the answer? Absolutely, he's the answer. He's the answer. And so uh, Philip said, let me introduce you as a politician uh, who has all this money, but you don't have hope. Let me introduce you to Christ who will give you hope. Uh, and this might be you uh, sitting here wondering, why am I in church today? Why am I watching online? Uh, well, my wife wanted me to, and I'm doing it to appease her because uh, a happy wife is a happy life, so I'll do it. And then all of a sudden, you're hearing this guy talking about Jesus. Yeah, I heard a little bit about him. Talking about sin. Yeah, I might have a little bit of that in my life. Yeah, but he's the, he's the answer to your sin. Uh, your answer is found in Isaiah 53, uh, greatest prophecy of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, and I'm a Christian because I'm a thinking person, not because I check my brain at the door. Uh, do I look like an emotional check my brain at the door kind of person? I, I'm in a suit today, freaking you out. I've already been stopped several times. Why is it, it's nothing to do with my sermon, if I wear a suit, you hyperventilate. I mean, I've had people coming up to me, what's going on? Like, what's going on? Yeah, I told one lady, I have like five suits. I have to wear them every once in a while. 
don't you? So just, you know, take a chill pill. Back to my sermon. Um, so when you, when you think about the, the, the work of Christ and what he's done for you here, is it a precise prophecy? Precise. So you have to ask yourself, this was what was prophesied, the, the, the work of the, of the servant when he would come, the, the, the one who would deal with sin. This is what is prophesied. Did Christ fulfill it to the letter? The answer is going to be yes, perfectly, perfectly. Uh, when I've talked to the Jewish side of my wife's family before, um, it, it's really interesting because they've asked me because I've had a number of conversations over the years. Uh, you know, where's Jesus in the Old Testament? Or the, I, I don't see him there. Really? Uh, you know, well, let's go to Isaiah 53. Uh, it's interesting when you explain to them Isaiah 53, they don't understand it. My, my sister-in-law is like, I have never heard this before. And I go, well, it's good that you have heard this uh, because this is the Savior. This is the Messiah. And this is what he's done for you. He's the servant of all servants. And so this is the ultimate question of who is Jesus. So 800 years before Christ was born around 5 BC, the prophet Isaiah uttered this prophecy to say, when the Messiah comes, this is what he will do. Uh, we're looking at it now 2,800 years after the fact uh, of the evidence. So uh, when we look at this passage, it has one main motif we'll cover for the next uh, three weeks, uh, today, next Sunday, and then for Good Friday. Uh, we'll look at this particular prophecy, and we're going to cover the same idea, main idea, for all three times. So what does he talk about here? He talks about in this passage that salvation is grounded uh, in Christ, in Christ. He's the servant. He's the ultimate servant of all servants, and he will be the one who will be, uh, experience degradation by means of crucifixion and then exaltation. So you have to ask yourself, if the prophesied Christ was going to be degraded first and then exalted, the simple question is, did that happen to him? Or we'll find exactly what is prophesied is what happened concerning him. But first we must ask, uh, as, as, the, as the Philip posed to the Ethiopian eunuch, who is this man in this passage? Because it's presented as a man, like not the nation. So first we must ask, could, could this be Isaiah that's prophesied here? No, because this man bears the sin of the world on his shoulders as a sacrificial animal, but he's a sacrificial man. And so what you find here is like, well, it couldn't be Isaiah because he was a man and he had sin. And we know that he had sin because if you go back and read Isaiah chapter 6, he gets ushered into the presence of God. And if you ever think, man, that'd be awesome. If I could just be ushered into the presence of God, that'd be awesome. Well, it was awesome, all right. And as he sees God high and lifted up, and here's the cher cherubim, uh, you know, quoting Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, you know, kadosh, kadosh, over and over again, that rhythmic God is holy. All of a sudden, he looks at him himself, and what does he see? Sin. Sin. And that's where God has to get an angel to go over to the coals, you know, the altar of coals and get one and, you know, like spiritually touch his mouth to, to cleanse him of his sin. Because when you get near God, you see your sin. Uh, and so this couldn't be Isaiah because a sinful man couldn't bear the sin of other men. That would have to be the God-man who had no sin. That was Jesus. And by the way, it's prophesied in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that when the Messiah would come, his name would be Emmanuel, which is God with us. And so it's prophesied that he would come. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, if you want to read it, it's prophesied that when he would come, uh, he, would all, he would be the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, mighty God. He'd be God in the flesh. And so uh, when you look at this chapter to say, is it Isaiah? No, because it was prophesied the God-man would come. Well, could it be the nation? No, uh, because I'm going to show you some other arguments with inside the passage. It could not be the nation. And one of the reasons it couldn't be the nation is the same one why it couldn't be a man, because the nation had sin. Because all you have to do is understand biblical history to realize they had sin all about them as a nation. Just go read 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Jeremiah, pick a book. 
and you'll see the sin of the nation. So there's no way sinners could pay for their own sin because that's not going to be acceptable to God. So a sin against the holy God has to be met with a, a sacrifice that's great enough to pay the penalty for God's wrath against sin that can only come from the God-man Jesus, by definition. So in light of all that, I'm going to blow your minds by telling you, this has probably never happened before in this church, so you were here to see this. I only have one point today. Whoa. Like if you're new today going, so what? Uh, no, I, I only have one point today. So we're only going to look at verses 13 to 15, and we're going to talk about the mystery of the servant, Jesus, because it is a mystery what God did. I mean, uh, the prophet Isaiah uh, tells us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts in chapter 55. Boy, that's a truth. Neither are his ways our ways. When you think about how God went about to redeem sinners from sin, how he went about it is not how we would have planned it. It is a mystery. And to help you understand that, we need to understand the flow of the book of Isaiah. So I want to just introduce you to the servant songs uh, in, in the book. There are four of them. Uh, this is the fourth one. So the first one is chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. The second one is in chapter 49, 1 to 6. The third one is in chapter 50, verses 3 to 9. This is the fourth one, the, the great one. And so contextually, if you look at these as panels of rhetorical thought, uh, chapters 49 to 52 that precede this, uh, Isaiah speaks about uh, the salvation of God's chosen people. God's chosen people would be Israel because God chose them according to Deuteronomy 7, not because they're the greatest, smartest people on the planet, but because they were the least. And he chose them to bring the Messiah through them. So 49 to 52, uh, contextually, he talks about their salvation. Then in skip chapter 53, when you get to 54 to 55, he uh, calls them to participate in God's salvation or from a New Testament perspective, to get saved, to get born again. Well, the means of getting saved is, well, that's articulated in chapter 53. He tells you how to get saved. And that's the mystery of salvation is in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 52. I know, you, I, know I told you we'd be in chapter 53, but in the Hebrew text, there's, there's originally no verse notation in chapters. Those were added later to help you as a Westerner understand the flow of the book. Uh, so all scholars are in agreement that uh, chapter 52, verses 13 to 15 begins the servant song, the fourth one, where he explains the mission of the master. And so we're only having that one point today, the mystery of the servant, right? You can handle just one point. It's all we're covering. Um, what does he say here? Well, he goes over the mission of the master. He says, behold, my servant. This is God speaking. God, the father says, behold, my servant. He will do what? It's in English. You see it? He'll, he'll prosper. He'll prosper. Uh, and after, in light of his prospering, he will be high. He will be lifted up. He'll be greatly exalted. Three times he told you he's going to get exalted to an extreme height when his mission is finished. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. Uh, for what had not been told of them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. I mean, when Pilate has him on trial, Pilate realizes this man is totally innocent. I mean, we are getting rid of him based on trumped up charges. I wash my hands clean of him. Uh, he, he, he could see that there's something unusual about Jesus. Uh, at the crucifixion detail that uh, crucified many people, and this is what they did for a living as a soldier. Um, there was one soldier at the crucifixion site of Christ when he saw the earthquake and all that happened when Christ died uh, that afternoon at 3 p.m. He looked up at the cross, and do you remember what he said, this hardened soldier? Truly? This was the Son of God. And I didn't tell this to the last service, so this is just extra because it just dawned on me. Sometimes the Spirit gives you extra stuff. 
So don't tell them you should have been at the second service because, yeah. Well, you know, it's my 64-year-old brain. Something else has hit me. So well, I was in, so in Israel uh, on the Valley of Armageddon, uh, on, the, on the southern edge of it, um, there, there was a Roman, there's a, there's a prison there right now for political prisoners uh, like uh, Hamas and Hezbollah. It's a scary looking place. And they were excavating that years ago. Uh, and I was reading an archaeology magazine because I've been there many times in that area. And as they were scraping out the area to enlarge the political prison, uh, they came across a, a, a raised floor that had inlaid tile. And the in-raised floor was inside of a Roman barracks. And on the part of the raised floor were loaves and fish because the Roman garrison was Christian. And in their barracks, they worshiped Christ. Is that not shocking? You have to wonder, I wonder if the soldier on the crucifixion detail led the other guys to Christ. It's just an extra thing. Think about it. The mystery of Christ's work is so amazing. So when we think about this, when you look at the text uh, in English, um, no, we're not that far ahead. We're, we're on verse 13. Whoever's doing my slides. Oh, wait a minute. See. Yeah, could we go back to verse 13? If anybody can hear me. Any angel could like, awesome. Yeah, there's some seraphim behind the curtain. So, so what does he say? Behold, my servant will prosper. So, uh, in, so in the English text, behold is just a, hey, just behold. In the Hebrew text, nah, no, it's huge. Because in the Hebrew text, it's the word hine. Hine means, uh, it's not a verb. Uh, hine, behold. Uh, and why is it so important? Because it's out of word order. Because in the Hebrew text, you read from right to left. And uh, so all the consonants are on one line. All the vowels are on the line below the consonants. So you kind of read Hebrew like you're on a rough road. Like that. Gathering all the vowels and consonants and putting the sounds together. So when you have something that's not a verb first, it's totally emphatic. Don't you find this interesting that God wants to take you, the Ethiopian, in, the, in, the, in, the, in your chariot, as it were, and you're, you're listening to this message, and you're like, well, what am I supposed to get out of this? God has like grabbed you by the tunic, and he's shaking you to go, behold, man, if you get anything, you get this. He, he does it grammatically to get your attention. Um, he says uh, his, his chosen servant, ser, ser, servant will prosper. Um, he's going to tell you how he's going to prosper. First is by degradation, then by exaltation. And he's going to tell you the same thing when you get to chapter 53, verses 11 to 12. He's going to tell you, let me recap what I said in chapter 52, verses 13 to 15. Degradation leads to exaltation. He closes the same way that he started. Now, if you're in speech, a great way to construct a speech is to do that. It's called inclusio. It's a speech, speech form. It's a great way to drive your point home. Because if you walk out going, what was he talking about today? We started out with the same concept and he ended with the same concept. It was like, drop the mic. That was awesome. That's what he does here. So he's going to tell you what's the mission of the master? Degradation first, exaltation second. In case you didn't get that, he's going to close the whole panel out with that. It's like wrapping a beautiful bow around a package. If you write, you don't want to see a package when I wrap it. It's like, I don't know how my wife does it. She does an excellent job. My bows always look like they went through a meat grinder or something. It's just, but this is like the beautiful rhetorical bow wrapped around the greatest prophecy where you can't miss the mission of Christ. He says that he will prosper because uh, God the Father is going to be behind this. Um, the word for prospering means um, really to act wisely so you're successful. You're wise so you're successful. Uh, it, that particular word, uh, it's a Hebrew word, shakal. Uh, it's used in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 of the branch, uh, the branch from the tree of David that was cut down, the Davidic line. But out of that stump would come the branch, who's the Messiah. And it, and it talks about in Jeremiah 23, verses 5, that when the Messiah comes from the Davidic line, that he will rule wisely 
and successfully. No kidding. Applied to the work of the Messiah, uh, the servant, it says that he's going to prosper because he's a wise servant. Um, Also, we want you to understand his his success leads to him being high and lifted up uh, and greatly exalted. So three times he's going to tell you, he's not just going to be successful. When he finishes his mission, his exaltation is like a threefold thing. He's going, to be, he's, he's going to be high, he's going to be lifted up and exalted. And you have to ask yourself, well, if Jesus is the Messiah, he's the servant of this passage, um, was he exalted to a high place? Uh, the answer is, yes, he was. Now, what's interesting uh, is three other times in the book of Isaiah, because I checked, that particular phrase, ology, uh, to be high and to be lifted up, is only ever used, this is super important, grammatically, of God Almighty, Okay? So it's found in Isaiah 6, verse 1, 33, verse 10, and 57, verse 15. So here, think of it this way. If he says the servant will be highly exalted, and those, that phrase in Hebrew is only ever used of God, what's the question? Who's Jesus? What's the answer? God. That's how I know that Isaiah 53 is not about the nation, because it's saying the servant is God, the God-man. So was God, the, the God-man exalted after his, uh, his uh, crucifixion? The answer is yes. Uh, Peter, uh, who lived with Christ, uh, was eventually uh, executed, uh, crucified upside down by Nero uh, because he didn't want to be crucified right side up because he didn't find he was worthy to be crucified like Christ. So he had them turn him upside down for his crucifixion. Uh, he went to his cross based on what he had seen with his own eyes. Notice what Peter says, Acts chapter 2, because he had seen the... He had seen the the, the, the ascension of Christ. He had been on that little knoll of the Mount of Olives looking back over the Kidron uh, Valley, which is not a, really a valley, it's just a little gorge. And he's looking west. He could see the Temple Mount. He could see where it all took place. Garden of Gethsemane was just right down below him. They, they had seen the ascension of Christ. They had, they had seen the crucifixion. They had seen the resurrection. And they're standing talking to Jesus. And he began to float up among, uh, from them and go up into the clouds. If I started doing that right now, you're thinking, it's the rapture right? Right. And if you're not rising, you better consider your theological position. But this is Jesus talking to them, and all of a sudden, he's, he, he goes off into the heavens. And, you know, and there's, you got angelic classes standing there that day. And the angels, you got to love them. If people say the Bible's boring, they need to read it. Because the guys are standing there looking at, this is amazing. Jesus is ascending. I mean, he's got no power pack on or nothing. And the angel says, uh, why are you Jewish boys looking up into the heavens. They said, as he has gone, so he shall return. And I don't know about you as a Christian. This is how, how I make it, book of Revelation. Because I know he's coming back. And how, he's going to set everything straight. It's awesome. That's a whole other series. Um, but Peter said, I was there that day. Notice what he says in Acts 2 uh, at, the, at Pentecost. Uh, after the resurrection, he's speaking to the Jews on the Temple Mount. He says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to whom we are all witnesses. And, and the, the, um, this is Greek. So the Greek word uh, witness is martus. Sounds like martyr. Yeah, we're all martyrs. And Peter says, I'm going to go to my cross over this one. He says, therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. He poured forth the Holy Spirit on the church. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. God the Father never said that to David, but he said it to the Messiah. 
And, and, and Peter said, uh, this is all prophesied, Psalm, Psalm 2. This is all prophesied because the exaltation of the Messiah is all part of Isaiah 53. He said, I saw it. Degradation led to exaltation. Peter eventually paid for that with his life, that witness account, because he had seen the resurrection of Christ. And he was seated at the right hand of the Father. Talk about a special place. The right hand of the Father is where the Son is, just as prophesied. In verse 14, he tells us how he got to a point of exaltation was by means of degradation. Verse 14, he says, Just as many were as were astonished at you, as the servant, my people, um, he says, so his appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of man. So it was prophesied that when the God-man would come, as prophesied in Isaiah 7, 14, 9, verse 6, and in this entire chapter, it's, it's prophesied that he would experience brutal treatment when he got here. And that's exactly what happened. Um, he said he'd be marred more than any man has been marred. Um, I went one time, I, I, I get all kinds of phone calls as a pastor and seen all kinds of things. Um, one time in, in my California church, I, I got called to the emergency room to see an elderly man in our church. You know, and I got to thinking about it today. I, I, you, when you use somebody's nickname, you know, for like 19, 20 years, I never knew his first name. Uh, we just called him Doc. Doc, Doc Maplethorpe was his name. Uh, lovely wife, Helen. They're, about, they're now both with Christ. But he was like a, a frail 80-year-old, you know, former World War II Army vet. Just a great guy. Um, and I got a call that he was in the emergency room. I asked what happened. It said he got carjacked. Uh, you know, go, would you go down and pray for him? So I went down to the emergency room, and so I asked the nurse at the front station, I said, you know, uh, which, uh, you know, which room is Doc in? Doc who? <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, and so they pointed me where I was supposed to go, so I, I walked over there, and I, and I opened the, the curtain to step in there, and I'm like, ooh, I'm in the, I'm in the wrong room, because I, I didn't recognize him, because he, the guy that had answered his Craigslist ad was waiting for him with a tire iron, and beat him about the head. This little skinny old man beat him about the head with a tire iron. I didn't know it was him. I don't know if you've ever seen anybody like that. It was pretty gruesome. I, I couldn't tell. I couldn't see his eyes. His face was like twice the size that it normally was. Uh, and I was, I was, I've seen a lot of things as a pastor. That absolutely shocked me. And I had to step back and, and think, am I in the right? <laughs> you know, am I in the right place? And I checked, and it's like, yeah, you are. That's him. So I went in and, and prayed for, for Doc. And I held his hand, talked to him, comforted him. Uh, that's just a small illustration of marring of, of a human body. So when, when he says that he would be marred to where you couldn't see that it was him, that was what was prophesied. That would happen to him. Did that happen to the Messiah when he came? Hmm? Yeah, absolutely. If you study his trials after they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, he first went to Annas, uh, who had been the former high priest, uh, and then they took him to Caiaphas, uh, uh, the, uh, to his house, who was the current high priest, uh, and uh, they tried him there on a trumped-up trial. Uh, they found him guilty of blasphemy, uh, and then they summarily uh, blindfolded him and beat him. Uh, eventually, they're going to send him. Uh, there's multiple trials he had that night in the middle of the night. Uh, eventually, wound up before Pilate, the the the, the Roman authority in the area. Uh, Pilate uh, eventually uh, turned Jesus over to be beaten by the lictors. Uh, and when, if you study Roman crucifixion, um, there's a guy named Hegel, a German, H-E-G-E-L, who wrote the book on the crucifixion. It will explain to you where it came from, how they did it. Uh, the Romans weren't, didn't start it, uh, but what they, they ramped it up to a whole new level. And I won't go into all the details. Uh, there is a medical article I could send to you if you want to read it. It explains what happened from a doctor's perspective. 
But I'll just summarize kind of what they did. When it talks about marring, they would uh, have a post, like a railroad, uh, like a telephone tie uh, post. Uh, and it was about six feet tall. And they would tie the person on that after they stripped them down. They would take a flagellum, which was a wooden stick a couple of feet long, uh, wrapped in leather, uh, leather strips going off the end of it. They wouldn't just hit you with the leather strips. They would weave bone and rock into the strips. Two lictors would take turns hitting you all about your body from the top of your head down to your, the backs of your legs. And they would do that repeatedly over and over again. That's, that's what they did to Christ. Um, they disfigured him. Uh, completely. That's why when he's carrying his cross, I'm sure people were looking at him saying to themselves, mom, is that Jesus? Is that him? Doesn't look like him. In fact, he doesn't even look like a man. Uh, when he went back eventually to Pilate uh, for his final trial, according to Mark 15, 15, they flogged him again. Unbelievably brutal. Uh, who was it? It was Jesus. Why was that happening? Because he had to, he had to endure what was prophesied to bear our sin. I mean, he's taking our wrath because he's the innocent one. Uh, why did he do this? What well, tells you in verse 15 why he did this. This is a prophecy telling you everything you need to know about the work of Christ, which he'll develop in chapter 53. Uh, notice the, the cause-effect nature of this. It says, thus he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told to them, they're going to see, and what they had not heard, they're going to understand. They're going to come to terms with who is Jesus. Pick a nation around the world that doesn't, doesn't know Christ and the politicians don't accept Christ. There, there comes those moments when they have an aha moment. I mean, I, I've heard lots of stories. Uh, I, had, I heard about a, a mathematician in China uh, who worked for the government that when he went to a huge meeting in behalf of his country in Europe, uh, disclosed to people there that he had come to, this was years ago, but he, had, he is one of the key mathematicians in China, had come to know Christ. And he didn't know what to do about it when he got back to his country. And so when he got back to his country, he told everybody what, he, you know, the officials above him, what he had done. And since he was one of their key guys, they said, We're, we find this intriguing that you, a great thinker, would embrace Jesus. Well, he had seen the evidence. And so they left him in his position uh, to be a witness. And so it's that kind of prophecy that people would, their mouth would drop open when they finally came to terms with who Jesus is, like the mathematician, like the eunuch that day. Like maybe you, when you got saved, when, when Christ saved you, if you think back to the day, I mean, mine was back in 1967. Yes, there was electricity. Yes, there were roads. I remember back then, but when I got saved, I mean, all the, everything just came to center. I absolutely knew who Jesus was. You didn't have to convince me I was a sinner. My whole family told me that, you know, um, I totally understood. That. I understood. I understood the per person of Christ, uh, the, the Christ knocking at the heart's door. That picture got me because I studied as a nine-year-old. It had no, had no doorknob. And he's gently knocking with a little lantern. And the, the door is your heart. And it, that was my heart. And, you know, my mom told me, uh, honey, the doorknob's on the inside. You have to open it. And I did. Uh, you know, you have that aha moment. And when you have that, it's just like, wow, I finally get it. And I would pray that you would have that kind of moment. Because he went through all of this to sprinkle you. Now, this is interesting. Um, he says in verse 15, thus he will sprinkle many nations. So, what you have there, uh, the word thus in Hebrew is the word kin, like K-E-N, uh, like the name kin. Um, that is an adverb. Uh, that's not supposed to be there unless they want to create an emphasis. So again, God says, let me grab your attention and create an emphasis. So my wife and I last year, about this time last year in May, uh, we uh, redid our whole first floor. It, it, it needed to be redone. I mean, the old floor is 30-something years old, redid the kitchen, etc. So if I were to invite you over to my house uh, today, you know, for lunch, I'm not, but if I 
if I did, if I did, and you came over, you and your husband, your girlfriends, whoever, however you came over, and you walked in and you saw our, our new dining table, uh, and we, we set a, an, an easy chair on top of it. Like, hey, check out the new flooring, and hey, look at the new, look at the paint, and you know, I went with the kind of a grayish kind of color to kind of make it more modern, all that kind of stuff, and you're like leaning to your husband or whoever, what's up with the chair on the dining table? Wouldn't you see it? And when you think we're like strange, I mean, I mean, come on, admit it. I mean, you like, really? See, that's what this grammatically does. When I read this in Hebrew, it's like, wow, it, it's got that adverb at the very beginning. Why? Because God doesn't want you to miss this. Why not? Because you are either sprinkled or you are not sprinkled. If you are sprinkled by the, by the blood of Christ, you are a child of God bound for heaven. If you are not sprinkled by the blood of Christ, you might be a nice person, but you're still under your sin and the wrath of God, and in eternity you will not be with him. That's why the grammatical order is the way that it is. God wants to get your attention. The word sprinkle uh, is very interesting in Hebrew. Uh, it means to purify that which is stained and unholy. So if you don't know Christ, you're stained and unholy. doesn't mean you can't be a nice person and do moral things, but before God, who's absolutely holy, you're stained and unholy. What do you need? You need to be sprinkled by the, the proper blood sacrifice. So there's a scholar, his name is J. Alec Moiter, uh, and the, he, the Hebrew here uh, for uh, sprinkle is the word nasa. Here's what he says about it. He says, this verb occurs 22 times in the Old Testament, and yes, scholars get paid to count weird stuff like that. 22 times in the Old Testament. It deals with hallowing persons in Exodus 22 uh, of things, hallowing them, uh, Leviticus 8.11, and cleansing, uh, Leviticus 14.7, and atoning for something like uh, Yom Kippur, a day of atonement. Uh, it, it atones for sinners. So how does a sinner get right before God? You need sprinkling. How do you get sprinkled? You have to bring the right blood sacrifice that God prescribes, use it, confess your sin on that sacrifice, like the burnt offering in Leviticus 1. You confess your sin on the proper lamb, your old lamb that's unblemished, and you bring that to the temple. You confess your sin on it. They slay the animal, put it on the fire, and God's wrath is diverted to the lamb, not you, because the lamb's blood atoned for your sin. It covered it. Again, I, I tell you, the mission of the master would be to sprinkle many nations. This is why this could not be the nation of Israel. They couldn't sprinkle themselves with atoning blood. That had to come from the God-man who could do that for him as prophesied. So I have to ask you the question before we move on. Are you sprinkled? Are you sprinkled or are you not? Uh, verse uh, 2 of 1 Peter chapter 2, here's what Peter, a converted Jew, says uh, about this. He uses this text. He says, speaking of Christians, we have been chosen according to uh, the foreknowledge of God as Christians, because God is omniscient and knows all things. You can't outfox what he knows. Uh, so if you ask me, do I believe in the foreknowledge of God, I'm going to tell you, yeah, yes. And if you ask me, do I believe in free will, I'm going to tell you, yes, because uh, both are taught. If you're going to ask me, how do, how do those incongruent things, how are they put together in the human mind, I'm going to tell you, I don't know. Okay, so we're moving on, all right? So he says, uh, so you are chosen, uh, notice the preposition through, you're chosen through, that's totally important, you're chosen through uh, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit uh, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled, past tense, with his blood. And then he says, grace and peace be yours in abundance. No kidding. Because once you're sprinkled, you got grace and peace in your life. When you're not sprinkled, you don't have grace and peace. Money doesn't bring it. Women don't bring it. Partying doesn't bring it. It only comes when you know Christ and your life is sprinkled. And so Peter said, no, I got the sprinkling concept because that came from Isaiah 53. 
This is also recorded in the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 13. Um, you might have an attorney or two here. Uh, this was called the a fortiori argument. What is that? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Here's how it works. Notice the conditional nature of it. For if the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of the red heifer sprinkling from the book of Leviticus, chapters 1 to 7, the prescribed method for atonement, of those who have been defiled sanctifies for the cleansing of the flesh. Then he says uh, in, in verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So notice the argument from the lesser to the greater. God prescribed uh, certain animals to be sacrificed that you could confess your sin on and your sin was transferred for them, but it wasn't perpetual because you had to go back because you continued to sin. And so it's, there's no way all those animals could take away all the sin of all the world for all time. So he says, if that worked temporarily, how much more the ultimate lamb of God, the God-man Jesus, to cleanse you of your sin for all time. Aren't you glad that God was so successful in cleansing you of your sin that you don't have to keep doing the animal thing all the time? Because Jesus is the ultimate. And so this is what he says. Jesus' shed blood is greater than all of the sacrifices for all time because he finished God's program to save people. Why? Because when he died, he paid the penalty for God's wrath against sin. He paid the penalty for your sin, as we'll see when we get into chapter 53. He can sprinkle you. Here's a question. Can any other person sprinkle you? No. You can pick any kind of belief system. If it doesn't have Christ about it, and he's not the sacrifice, and he's not the sinless one, and he's not God in the flesh, you cannot be sprinkled from your sin. How do you get sprinkled? Do you know? We have Christians here, don't we? I, yeah. How, how, how do you get sprinkled? I, I Lord, I'm a sinner, and I, I know my life is sinful, and I don't understand all theological issues and questions and everything, but, but I do know I'm a sinner, and I know you, well, you're the prophesied one who was degraded so I could be exalted. And I only get exalted if I get sprinkled. Would you, would you sprinkle me mystically with your shed blood? What will he do then? Let me think about it. Nah, he'll look at you and say, I, I wash you clean today. And you'll never be the same again. You'll never be the same again. Why did he do that? Why did he go through all that, the hardness of the crucifixion? He could, he could have another plan. I mean, like, why did he do that? Uh, there's a lot of Christians who memorize Bible verses, but one of the very first verses that you memorize is uh, John 3, 16. What's, what did you, this is Jesus speaking. Why did, why did he go to the cross for you and for me as the suffering servant? Well, he tells you, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for who? Put your name in there. I mean, I put my name in there in 1967 that when Marty believes in him, he won't perish but have eternal life. You put your name in there, you know? Uh, he then adds in verse 17 of John, uh, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but his mission was that you might get saved. And how do you get saved? How important is the prepositional phrase? <laughs> do you see the prepositional phrase? You might save through him. You can't get saved by any other means. You can't get sprinkled by any other means. You only have your sin dealt with, well, when you come through Christ. And Christ says, the day that you believe in me as the Savior who suffered for you, is the day you pass from death to life. I have to ask you a simple question this morning. Love motivated him to go to the cross. How could you reject that? Why would you reject that? Uh, why did he do it? He did it out of love for you. I don't know if you're a Generation Z, a Generation X, Y, Q, whatever you are. 
And I can tell you what they're looking for. They're, they're like looking, oh, yeah, I've got, I'm looking for the story of all stories. It's called a meta-narrative. I'm looking for the, the main story that helps everything in life hang together. Uh, if that's you, I got you, I got the story. It's the story of all stories of how sinners become saints before God. Uh, I can tell you what Generation Z and Generation X are also looking for. Uh, they're looking for community. They want to be part of a community that cares about them, loves them, loves people, etc. When you pass from death to life because Christ sprinkles you, you pass from a community of death to a community of love and awesomeness. And the local church is just an illustration of that. So I asked the last, uh, the last service, are you a really great Christian community? There was silence for a few minutes. They didn't know whether they were supposed to say anything. This is a question demanding some kind of response. So are you sprinkled? And if you are, do you have community here? Yeah. Why? Because this is a great community. It's a great community. People love you here. They accept you here. They'll admonish you. They'll hold you accountable. They'll sacrifice for you. It's a great community. But you get that great community that you as a Generation Z, Generation X are looking for. But it only comes from that relationship with Christ. Uh, I love hymns. I play them all the time on my piano at home. I love them. Uh, they mean much to me. There's, there's one uh, called, What Wondrous Love Is This? It's amazing. It says this, What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? For my soul. To bed, bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Isn't that the question? What kind of love drove him to fulfill that prophecy? What kind of love is that? Well, I want to know the God of that love. See, he wants a relationship with you. Verse 2, there's several verses, as all hymns have many verses, don't they? Like six or seven verses. Uh, this, verse 2, I love verse 2. When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down, sinking down, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid his crown aside for my soul. <laughs> That's what he did. He left the glory to come wear a crown of thorns, to be beaten so they didn't even recognize it was him, to go to the cross, to bury my sin, your sin, so that when you come to him in simple childlike faith, he sprinkles your soul for all time. I'm thankful he did that for me, for you. And if you don't know him, well then sometime today, you just need to get alone with him and say, Lord, sprinkle me. And he won't even think twice about it. He will say, that's why I came. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to talk about the gospel. Uh, embedded 800 years ago in this ancient prophecy, uh, and you fulfilled it to the letter to demonstrate that you are the suffering servant of all servants. Uh, we who know you, we praise you for your work, we adore you for your sacrifice, and we pray that our lives might exhibit uh, the life-giving gospel uh, that you came and paid so dearly for. And for those who don't know you, might they have an, a moment like the Ethiopian eunuch, that where you get their attention and they say, Lord, sprinkle me, and it will change their life, their marriage, their relationship with their parents, their kids, everything, because it is the answer to end all answers, finding life and forgiveness in your presence. In Christ's name, amen.